As you're taking your seats, if you would, please uh, take your Bibles, copy of God's Word, turn to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to look at the first three verses, yes, after going pretty quickly through several chapters, uh, we're going to go rather slowly for the next few times that we look at Ephesians, so Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 3. If, um, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there are pew Bibles in the pew rack in front of you. The black ones are pew Bibles, red ones are hymnals. And then it's also printed on the front cover of the bulletin there. If you're using the pew Bible, page 977. Without further ado, hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing now as we consider his word. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us life. You have given us instruction. You have given us light, clarity, truth. And Father, we pray now that we could take it all in. We pray that you would give us eyes to see, hearts, ears to hear, hearts that are ready to respond to all that you have to say to us. Speak to us, Lord, for your servants are listening. This we ask in Jesus' great name. Amen. Earn this. Those are the dying words from Tom Hanks to Matt Damon at the end of Saving Private Ryan. Hanks' character and many others have died to save the life of Private Ryan or Matt Damon. Earn this. What's that mean? He can't earn this. He's already been given the gift of life. Even Private Ryan is kind of confused by all this because years later, a flash forward, when he visits the cemetery in Normandy, And sees Hank's headstone, he asks his wife, have I lived a good life? He's wrestling with this question, how do you earn what's already been given? Well, perhaps a better way to say it, not that I often pick bones with Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg, a better way to say it might be, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, walk in a manner worthy of the great gift that you've received, walk in a way that shows your gratitude for this great gift. You can't earn your salvation. So maybe we should, should all stop trying. But we shouldn't, shouldn't stop trying to walk worthy of our calling. You've been called to a great calling, called out of the darkness and into the light. You're a child of the king. Now live like it, Paul seems to say, with all the dignity, generosity, gratitude of someone who is living a better life than you deserve. We've now come to Ephesians 4. We're going to slow down, slower than the first three chapters, but we're not going to forget those first three chapters. Ephesians is kind of neatly divided into two sections, one through three, four through six. One through three are the indicatives, statements of fact. You were dead in your sins. By grace, you have been saved. Gift of God. Four through six are the imperatives, the commands. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. But you see the imperatives, the commands, they assume the indicatives, the statements. 
It's not that you and I are trying to earn our salvation or keep our salvation now that we're saved. It's this, in view of God's mercy, as Paul says in Romans 12.1, why would we want to live any other way? Why would we want to return to the sin that we've been freed from? Why live in misery when we can walk in the light as children of the light? In short, our master, our example, our background, our redemption, all of these things call us to strive for unity and purity amongst other blood-bought Christians. That's what we see this morning. Three points that show us that. The first one is this, the master of our calling. The master of our calling. Verse one, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, again, this is a new section of Ephesians, but we can't forget the first one. <clears throat> in other words, when you see a therefore in the Bible, ask what it's there for. You can laugh or not at that. It's your choice, but, but do please remember it. It's important. Helps us read these letters from Paul and others. For three chapters, Paul laid out a grand plan with great roots, a great redemption, and great fruits, you might say. Great roots. In other words, we were conceived this this plan it was conceived before the foundation of the world chapter one tells us and it's talking about a great redemption in chapter two that we were dead in our sins but God made us alive in Christ and then there are great fruits that come from this that we might be rooted and grounded in love that we might know the love of God the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge John Stott summarizes all this by saying God is making new life for a new society or a new humanity. In this new society, it comes with new standards, right? Any business, any place you work, it has standards. Any school, it has standards for how you do things. So it is with God's people. It will be one new people characterized by unity. You see that in chapter 4 verses 1 through 16. And it will also be one holy people, characterized by purity. You see that starting in chapter 4, verse 17. Unity and purity weaved throughout this chapter. How could God's people, children of the king, be anything else? In other words, if you know the greatness of God's love, therefore you will be known by your unity and by your purity. You will understand why your master calls you to walk worthy of your calling. You might say the calling of God points us back to the God of our calling. What we're called to, unity and purity, it reminds us that the God who called us, a God who is one holy trinity, which is short for triunity, by the way. He is pure, holy, undefiled by sin. Why point all this out? Because the motivation that Paul gives us is multifaceted. It's like the rest of Scripture. The Bible motivates us with both duty and delight, rewards and our redemption, the great cost that's been paid for us. One motivation might be his calling, his, his authority. Another might be the example that Paul gives us here, the example of himself. Did you think about this, these opening words in this chapter? I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord... Now, first off, is it prisoner for the Lord, of the Lord, in the Lord? The translations vary, you might have noticed. The Greek phrase is actually flexible enough for all three of those, and, and all three are actually scriptural. God's children, like Paul, were often imprisoned for the Lord. 
Sometimes dying is martyrs. 2 Timothy 3.12 reminds us that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Also, Christians are prisoners of the Lord, aren't we? We're no longer slaves to sin, but now, by God's grace, we're slaves to righteousness. And then Paul often talks about Christians. We've said this in previous weeks. The Christians are those who are in the Lord, in him, in Christ. In Christ. Paul is bound in chains, but nothing has, nothing can, nothing will separate him from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And doesn't all this motivate us? Because here's Paul writing to the Ephesians, by extension to us, enduring prison, despising shame for us, for Christ. You know, he could have stopped walking worthy of his calling if he had wanted to avoid prison. <laughs> but that risk was already factored in. If Paul didn't stop when Christ's likeness landed him in prison, who are we to stop doing the same when Christ's likeness gets, you know, moderately hard? You know, those, those small p persecutions that we face when it costs us a spot on the travel soccer team when it reduces our popularity, when it causes us maybe to swallow our pride and extend forgiveness, even when they were more wrong than we were. I didn't hear any amens. There must be no one else who understands what that is like. <clears throat> and that last one previews another truth for us, doesn't it? If you look ahead to verse three, what, what is the manner that's worthy of our calling? Isn't it unity? And doesn't unity imply other people? <laughs> John Stott says, The life worthy of the calling of God is a life in the fellowship of the people of God. Stott's saying something very simple, but something's easy for us to overlook. He's saying that Christian fellowship, it's lived among other people. You know, outside of your, your computer or your cell phone having technical difficulties, it's real easy to be holy when other people aren't around, Right? It's really easy to pursue those things and then other people get in the way. Christian fellowship is lived among other people. By contrast, a French philosopher once wrote, hell is other people. Now, Jean-Paul Sartre's point, best I can tell, was that human relationships are all fraught with conflict. And if all of life is lived, say, without the Holy Spirit, then maybe Sartre had a point. However, I understand Christian theology a whole lot better than French philosophy, albeit still imperfectly, so let's get back to that. What I know is that if we're going to live worthy of our calling, then we have to follow our master's command, don't we? We have to follow Paul's example. We have to live with other people. We have to endure the sin and injustice of other people occasionally. We have to live our Christ-like calling amidst other Christ followers, other works in progress. Now, does that have implications for church membership? Yes, it does. Does it have implications for church attendance in person, so long as you aren't sick or providentially hindered? Yes, it does. Does it have implications for your church attitude? How you approach others, how you act around others? Oh, yes, it does. And that leads to our second point. After seeing the master of our calling, we also need to see the manner of our calling. The manner of our calling. In verse 2, let's read it. <clears throat> it says, we're to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, 
Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. There's five important words in that verse, but you know, if I jump right into that, those five words, how we live those words out with other people, we, we might get the wrong idea. We might think the point is live like this, and if you don't, you're a failure. <clears throat> or that it's live like this, or God will love you less. Maybe we wouldn't say it exactly that way. Or maybe it, it'd be live like this, or you're, or you're going to have to do better tomorrow to make up for it, to earn your salvation. But I have good news. You can't earn your salvation. I can't either. We're unable to do it. Adam wrecked it for all of his ordinary descendants. So I guess I'll have to stand on grace. We're not able to earn it. So before I get to those five words, let's get it straight. You can't earn your glorious calling. God calls you the same way that he once called Lazarus. He called a dead man to walk. And in the process of calling that dead man, it's how he gave him the life, the ability to obey. You're called by the all-powerful voice of God. Praise the Lord for that. But of course, the story doesn't end there, right? We can't stop at forgiveness and forget holiness. God has called us out of the darkness and into his glorious light. But that's not all that verse says, right? What else does 1 Peter 2 verses 9 and 10 say? It says, but you were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We're his people. We're his people that we can proclaim his excellencies, his glorious, his glorious calling out of the darkness into the light. We're his we're not our own. We have a mission. So we should not insist on our rights because every right we have was secured by Christ. I'm talking about within the people of God. If that's the primary thing we do, insist on our rights before everyone else, we're going to have a, a grumpy get-together every Sunday. We should lay our rights down that we might accomplish our mission. And to do that, we we have to walk worthy of the calling. We have to be holy, set apart, living according to his rules, by his grace. We have to be one. We have to be united. And if you understand that God has called you, that you can't do it, that you didn't earn it, you'll want to do this. Your duty will be changed into the light. So to do this, to walk worthy of your calling, to live like verse 2 says, now yes, we do have to think about these five words. We have to depend daily on his grace. If we want to live like this with all humility, that's the first phrase we see. Humility, <clears throat> a low mindedness or lowliness. First century Greeks, I read, did not consider this a virtue. Well, I'm not sure 21st century Americans do either, but you know what destroys unity quicker than anything else? Lack of humility. Thinking highly of yourself. People who say, you know what this church needs is more people like me. Is that what we need? Is that what you think? Maybe silently to yourself? Because you know, if so, then who's going to listen to all of our strong opinions? 
not the people who are like you and me, right? This is why John Stott says we need to recognize the value and worth of other people. It's why William Hendrickson says humility is the first, second, and third essential of the Christian life. And that means some of us have at least three priorities to work on after this sermon, right? <laughs> Do you want to see a pure and unified church? Then stop pointing fingers at troublemakers and ask God to show you why have you put this person <laughs> into my life, into my church family? What positive are they bringing to the table to me and others? If we want to walk worthy of our glorious calling, we need all humility and gentleness. That's the second word we see, gentleness or meekness. Meekness is not weakness, right? Meekness is strength under control. Calvin says if we don't have this quality, we'll never make it to the fourth word that's on this list, that whole bearing with forbearance thing. Meekness and gentleness. Calvin also says it helps to, quote, preserve the unity which would otherwise be broken a hundred times in a day. Doesn't take much to upset our unity. And again, why is that? One more from Calvin. He says, because everyone carries his love of himself in his regard for his own interests to excess. We're all prideful. We all want what we want. And if we don't keep our strength under control, we'll just steamroll others. We might get our way. We might even do a good job because some of our ideas are good ideas. But we may not make or take any friends with us along the way. So for my dissertation, I asked ruling elders what they learned about teamwork within a plurality, that's more than one plural, of elders, a plurality of elders who also have parity or equality. Former moderator of the General Assembly of our denomination, successful businessman, devoted churchman who had also endured a church split, told me this. He said, after that church split, the presbytery came in. They did an autopsy of sorts. And they said to him and others, this would have been easier if you all had been better friends. Sometimes it isn't rocket science. Sometimes there's no secret sauce to a healthy church. Sometimes it's just godly living, humility, gentleness, meekness. Someone, lots of someones who would rather suffer wrong than inflict wrong. Someone who knows that sometimes you have to give up the right to be right if you wanna preserve peace and unity. So to walk worthy of our calling, we must be gentle and meek with patience. That's the third word. One author points us to James 5.10. He says we need to be slow in avenging wrong and retaliating when hurt by another. True enough. I like John Stott's definition of patience the best. Long-suffering towards aggravating people. Long-suffering towards aggravating people. But you know what? Stott isn't done. What, what is this patience that, that Paul calls us to? It is long-suffering towards aggravating people such as God in Christ has shown to us. Oh, when you put it that way. Isn't God simply calling us to act towards others the way that he has acted towards us? And doesn't he promise us the indwelling Holy Spirit to help us do it? Walk worthy, Paul says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. 
bearing with one another. One author says this means we don't cease to love one's neighbors or friends because of those faults in them, which perhaps offend or displease us. But Matt, I'd really rather have friends who don't offend or displease me. Yeah. Is that what the golden rule says? Is that how God loved us? Even when we were still weak, still enemies with God, Christ died for us, Romans 5 says. It's real easy to say, but this isn't how the world treats me. That's not even how most people in the church treat each other. But my friends, that's the point. We're called to be countercultural. Of course the world doesn't act like this. Of course this doesn't come naturally. We were once dead in our sins and transgressions and much of the world still is. That's our default setting without God's grace. But that's not what makes us different. That's not our glorious calling to give everybody what they got coming. That's not the hope we herald or the excellency we proclaim. Our hope, the world's hope, is that Christ loved us despite our sin. What was he like? Wasn't he humble, not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped? Wasn't he gentle, not harsh, not insisting on his rights? Didn't he lay down his rights to secure ours? Wasn't he patient, not wishing any to perish? Aren't his kindness and his patience meant to lead us to repentance? Did he not bear with us in long suffering, despite all of our offensiveness in burdensomeness, despite the weight of our sin, didn't he carry it to the cross, nailing it to the cross so that we bear it no more? Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. He acted not in retaliation to us. He acted in love. The fifth word in verse two, in love, the crown in sum of all virtues, the manner of our calling is quite simply Christ-likeness. That's walking worthy of the name Christian. Living as becomes a follower of Christ. No, it's not easy. No, you can't do it on your own. But yes, Christ is ready to forgive when you fail. And Christ is ready to give you grace to strive for holiness, purity, and unity once again right now. God did not save you so he could get even with you by shaming you by something else. God saved you to transform you to make you a better version of yourself, to make you more like Jesus. So walk worthy of your calling, friends. Walk in Christ-likeness. You won't regret it. Christ will be pleased as you depend on him and give glory to him. That's the manner of our calling. And finally, briefly, we see the motivation of our calling in verse three. <clears throat> What's the end goal of this calling? The end goal of walking worthy with all humility and gentleness, patience and forbearance with love. What's the end goal? Verse three, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Unity is something we have inherently as Christians. Why? Well, that's our next passage. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We all have one Lord. We all, we all think we're the Lord of our life just like all of mankind, just like Adam and Eve. But we have one Lord. He's Lord whether we realize it or not. Christians are quite simply those who've come to realize we have one Lord. We realize it and yet we don't always live like it, right? 
But how does my Lord want me to react when this person tells me that this is their pew? Now, we don't even have pews here, but you know what I mean. I'm not sure if this is a thing in the West. It's kind of a thing in the South sometimes. By the way, it was also a thing in colonial New England. If you visit the old North Church, you know, Paul Revere, British are coming, all that. The size of your pew there, or your box, they had box seats kind of, was determined by how much you gave to the church. (laughs) The good old days were not always good, my friends, so... Maybe we should strive to make tomorrow better by God's grace. How does my Lord want me to act when someone else acts selfishly towards me? Maybe I should ask why this is so important to them. Maybe I should find a way to draw closer, find a way to brush it off if possible, find a way to serve them. Maybe I should be, as it says here, eager to maintain unity in the bond of peace. Because my job is not to earn the peace, to create the peace Christ promises. I've already received it. My job, my calling is to maintain it. No longer imprisoned by selfish desires, no longer bound by sin. I'm bound by peace. A peace that Christ purchased for a not so humble, not so gentle, not very patient, not very forbearing wretch like me. He loved me, gave himself for me that I might find freedom, that I might realize this glorious calling that he's given me to proclaim his peace, his freedom far and wide, to also proclaim it within the body of Christ to other people who still aren't Christ-like all the time. But if my master laid down his life to make me pure, to make me part of one holy and pure church, then how can I disappoint? How can I Do anything but strive with all eagerness to maintain this gift that he's given me. Not trying to earn it. Can't do that. But I am trying to walk worthy of my master's calling. And friends, I I won't lie. This isn't easy. I didn't choose this sermon series because I thought it was easy. I chose it for a couple reasons. One, this is what we need. Now and always. What problems do we have among each other? Not talking about geopolitical conflicts. What problems do we have among each other that can't be solved with more humility, more gentleness, more patience, more forbearance, more love? And second reason, this is what our world needs. World that's divided, angry, putting their hope in things that won't deliver. They need to meet a community who loves them even more than they love themselves. A community who will love them when they don't deserve it. A community who will love them even if they don't agree with them. It's what our world needs. It's what our world has always needed. It's what we need. It's what our great God and Savior died to create. A whole new humanity. A new society. A chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for God's own possession that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's walk in the light together by God's grace, because in his light, we see light. Let's pray. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, be our help, be our hope right now. We know we need it. We need you every hour. We need you this hour. Father, there may be some who realize All those things, 
It's what I don't see in the world that I want to see. Frankly, it's what I don't see in myself that I want to see. Maybe it's someone who's realizing that for the first time. And maybe it's someone who's saying, I want that, but I don't know how to get it. He says, I can have it in Christ, whatever that means. Oh God, let me have it. Let me have it now. Father, if there's someone here who's praying that, I'd love to meet them later. And if there's someone here who's praying that for the thousandth time, then praise the Lord, because it's what we all need. It's what we all need every day to realize that all the virtues, all the character qualities, the godliness that you call us to is not something we can produce on our own. We need your Holy Spirit to help us. We need him inside us to transform us. We need your grace. And so God, whether we've never received it before, let us receive it now. If we've received it a thousand times, let us receive it for the 1,001st. And let us remember how much we need it tomorrow as well. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.